When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. All right, we're back. It's another Carolina podcast feeling a little bit naked today, a little bit exposed. Pearson Fowler here, Wes Mitchell, but no Chris Clark, who's taking a much-needed vacation. We're very, very happy that Chris uh, is, in fact, taking a vacation because, as it seems like we talk about every week, there's been an unbelievable amount of things going on this summer, and uh, Wes and Chris and all of y'all over at Gamecock Central have been incredibly busy, so as much as we will miss Chris on the pod today, Excited that he's taking a little bit of time off. So, Wes, the burden all falls to you. And, you know, fortunately not a ton of recruiting news, uh, although we will get to a little bit here in just a minute. But we want to start with the breaking news of today, and this broke just about an hour ago is when you had it on GamecockCentral.com. But as anticipated, Zaquandre White has been approved by the University of South Carolina. He was expected to be on campus at some point this week. You mentioned last week there was nothing to worry about. It was really just sort of the formality of making sure that he was cleared academically. But the JUCO running back is now officially a member of the University of South Carolina football team. Um, how big a news is this? Yeah, it is big, man. And I think there's always a little bit of a worry within the fan base, uh, especially if they've been following this stuff um, you know, for a long time. It always seems like, when the JUCO guys transferring in, there, there's always sort of a last-minute, um, you know, situation where you're just waiting on something to be formalized. And sometimes, you know, it gets pushed back. Or, originally, you know, there had been a hope that uh, Zaquandre White was going to be in earlier, and obviously that ended up having to get pushed back. So, yeah, I, I had been hearing that everything looked good, the grades looked good. I had uh, been told and posted, I think it was Thursday or Friday, you know, that the plan hope was for him to be in on this past Sunday. Obviously, that didn't happen, so everybody started, everybody, just me and the fan base, was a little bit worried, you know, what's the holdup, what's going on, uh, some sort of formalities there that had to get finished out, which is normally the case when you're talking about, a, you know, a guy having to transfer his credits over from JUCO. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's about as official as it can be today. Of course, like, like you said, that break in this morning, that's actually been officially um, confirmed to buy school, meaning, uh, you know, it's not just something we're hearing or something that the kid has said it's been approved on the school end, which is obviously a, uh, a very big good sign for the Gamecocks. And uh, he'll be in, uh, you know, ASAP as soon as possible. As soon as he can uh, get up here and, and get moved in, he'll, uh, he'll be able to start working out with the team. And I think it's important. We talked about this last week because uh, I guess, yeah, Friday was the first day that the 20-hour week started in this sort of ramp-up period, and I think it's especially important for Zaquandre that he's going to come in and he's not going to be expected to you know, jump right into practice 
on August 7th. He's going to have a, you know, a little bit of time to get acclimated to campus, to get acclimated to, you know, his teammates, to the room. Uh, I imagine he's already, well, actually, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know if he's like allowed to have the playbook or participate in meetings. I, I guess probably not since he wasn't officially enrolled at South Carolina, but he does have at least no, a couple. Could. Oh, he, he, he has? Okay. Um, he, um, he would have been able to participate I believe, as I'm saying that, I'm a little bit second-guessing myself. But I, I know – so the freshmen that um, that had already signed with South Carolina, they were able to participate in the Zoom calls, even though they were not on campus yet. Okay. And it's normally pretty common practice for a school to send out a playbook ahead of time as well. So, um, so yeah, he, he would have been able to be um, on the Zoom calls, I do believe, and, and could have been going ahead and mentally sort of getting prepared. Uh, just a quick editorial note here. Uh, Wes Mitchell actually spoke with Zaquandre just about an hour and a half after we finished recording this podcast and confirmed uh, that despite the NCAA allowing high schoolers that were technically not yet enrolled in South Carolina to participate in Zoom meetings throughout this very unusual offseason, that Zaquandre was not allowed to because he was still enrolled in classes at his junior college. So uh, efforting this a while we recorded it, and then uh, he let me know, like I said, about an hour and a half after uh, we recorded this when he spoke to Zaquandre that that was not, in fact, the case. I just wanted to insert this quick editorial note. Now back to the podcast. You know, man, I, I think I, it would have been ideal for him to be able to, to go ahead and, and the South Carolina when the actual summer workout stuff started, right. you know, the, the weight training and the conditioning and all that stuff, but uh, you know, as it, as it was told to me, a lot of these Florida kids, man, um, football is life. Like, football is what they do. They wake up, they call up their buddies, and uh, they, they go hit the field. So he, he's he been out running, conditioning, lifting. Um, I don't know if it was necessarily his high school or just one of the other um, facilities by. From what I've been told, he's been, you know, it's not the same as team workouts. It's certainly not the same as the college football weight program but mm-hmm. he has been running working out with his teammates staying on the field just sort of playing you know basically pickup ball a lot of these florida kids that, that's just what they do they, they grab a ball and they, they go hit the field so um much like you know a lot of guys play two-on-two basketball or something with their buddies these guys just get out there and go throw the ball around and run and stuff like that so uh, i'll be curious to see i think the big question there is just um it, you know, how close is he to being in football shape? Because I think football shape is a much different uh, animal than just being in regular old good shape for, for anybody else. Columbia heat, as we all know, the humidity hits a little bit different around here mm-hmm. in the summer. So that'll be a factor. And, and then, um, you know, knowledge of the playbook. How, uh, you know, how far along is he on that? How quickly does he pick it up? I, I think those are your big, certainly, not downplaying the news it's great news for South Carolina but I think right off the bat that's the biggest question here right well and I was actually going to say it's nice that he does have uh, you know this this sort of ramp up period these these or I guess for him you know week and a half of OTAs before camp starts because that is going to be mostly walkthroughs and you know I guess in-person meetings and and things like that which are going to help him I, I imagine help uh, I guess reduce his learning curve because you know if you come in on August 7th that's going to be pretty tough to, to pick everything up even if you've had the playbook just looking at it and we talked about this last week it's a little bit different e- even just being on the field and being able to walk through it if you've, even if you're not going full speed 
for a lot of guys, you know, seeing it on the page is a little bit different than even walking through it on the field. But the other part of that is he is coming into a position at running back where it is going to be easier to pick those things up. I, I think everybody fully expects Marshawn Lloyd to be getting the RB1 snaps at the beginning of the season, despite the fact that he's a freshman, because by and large, and it'll probably take him a while to, you know, get the entire playbook and, uh, you know, be be where he needs to be in terms of pass protection and some of those other little things that make a truly great, well-rounded running back. But just in terms of running the football, you hand him off, you know, he knows how to run a dive. He knows how to run a counter. He knows how to run, you know, power and different things like that. And Zaquandre is going to be in a similar situation. So I, I guess my follow-up question for you um, coming into a running back position, now obviously Carolina lost three seniors last year, four if you count A.J. Turner, who unfortunately never, I don't think he even got a carry last year, which is really disappointing. I feel bad for A.J. I always liked him. But uh, you you have a little bit of returning experience with Kevin Harrison, Deshaun Fimlick, but like I said, mostly it is Marshawn Lloyd. So where does White figure into the running back room right off the bat? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, to tease what we're going to talk about a little bit, later on he is one of my what I've deemed a wild card for the season and I I say that sort of in that I don't think White is necessarily a guy that you're completely counting on as in like this is a sure thing this is someone who's definitely going to come in and and play a ton but I I think he's someone that if um, if he comes in and can sort of learn things quickly and and get settled in could could really change the outlook of the season and and make a big impact and uh, for me I do think the the more I've heard, the more I've been told, uh, I'm as long as he's healthy, I'm going to be absolutely shocked at this point if Marshawn Lloyd isn't in the backfield, you know, RB1, play one, game one. But I, I think uh, we, we all know if you, you know, if you follow along, you got to have, it's not just two. A lot of times as the season where you got to have three, four different mm-hmm. running backs that you can at least count on to go play. And um, I, I think at number two spot, and uh, and obviously, you know, we're sort of projecting here. I, I think if you're the coaching staff, you're going to be like, you know, Marshawn Lloyd has to win the number one spot. He has to go earn it. Um, but assuming that he's going to go do that, because I think there's a 95% chance or higher that that's what happens as long as he's healthy, you sort of start to say, okay, who's number two? And then I I think that's where Zapondre White very quickly – um, has the chance, we'll put it like that, has a, has a great chance to become a factor because I think it's wide open. Not not that it's really even a huge question mark for me. I, I think they're going to be fine at running back. I, I think they feel good about that position. I just think there's going to be some real competition there. Um, I would say among returners, you probably give the edge to Kevin Harris. The Sean Fenwick did some good things this, this spring, but I would say in general terms, Kevin Harris has sort of been ahead of him on the pecking order. Um, and then I tell you what, man, don't don't completely forget about uh, Rashad Amos, the mm. freshman. I've uh, I've heard enough about him to make me believe he's going to be in the conversation. I've made the comment on a, on one of our YouTube lives. I was like, this very potentially is going to be that kid that comes in. Everybody's talking about Marshawn Lloyd. Everybody's talking about Quandre White, and then week seven or eight, somebody gets banged up. Somebody else gets banged up. They need somebody to go in at running back, and everybody's like, wow, who's this Rashad Amos kid? Like, I, I think he he's not necessarily going to be the number one, probably not the number two, although I wouldn't count it out, but I think at some point um, can make an impact this year as well. So you've got some really, really good competition there. But here's the thing. Laquandre White is a redshirt junior at this point. So 
He only has two years to play two. If he can help the team, then, uh, you know, he's going to be on the field. There's no need to think about long-term development here. There's no need to talk about, you know, red, you know a red shirt year or anything like that because it's already been used. Um, for him, there's a sense of urgency to find a way to get on the field and start making an impact. And, um, you know, it's sort of a, a right now thing for him, much like, you know, a little bit different situation, but Tegan Feaster last year had just one year of eligibility left. They're going to do everything they can to get kid on the field. I, I personally, Pearson, I, I think you maybe look at him in the kickoff return game as well. That, that's a position that is kind of uh, kind of open right now. I would say. Um, I think you look at a guy who can miss, who runs hard, who has some really good straight line speed, a bit of a long starter. I think he fits what you're looking for at a kickoff returner as well, I would maybe give an edge to to a Shy Smith, potentially. Xavier Leggett did it a little bit late last year, but Shy Smith's going to be so important to that offense and needs to be your number one receiver threat. I would look at kickoff return as being a potential way to get the quadrant wide on the field as well. You and Chris and I have talked a lot about how important versatility is, and if that can be a part of his game, that certainly contributes to his value. But again, this is already a guy that was Highly touted. This isn't a diamond in the rough that South Carolina found. I mean, coming out of Iowa Western, he is a four-star running back. And, and like you said, expects to be in the mix right away because he's a little bit older, because he doesn't have but two years to play his two years, um, and because, by all indications, he's a, a very, very good running back. I, I don't know if, if at this point it would make sense to go so far as to say he could challenge for the RB1, but like you said, you need multiple running backs, even if Marshawn Lloyd is going to get you know, 25 carries a game, you're still going to have, you're still going to need someone like White to come in and play probably 25 and 30 snaps or Harris or Amos or, you know, Fenwick or whoever it ends up being. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting about Carolina's running back room is I feel like a real diversity in skill sets because you have Lloyd, who's a little bit smaller than White, who's, you know, very shifty. Not that he's not physical, but it seems to be, seems to have that kind of breakaway speed or at least the, uh, the quick change of direction that it feels like Carolina running backs by and large haven't had uh, recently, more of the one cut types. Um, but then on the other end, you have someone like uh, White that's a little bit bigger, and you have Kevin Harris, who's absolutely ginormous and can squat 600 pounds. So I guess in terms of his skill set, yeah, if he falls in the middle in terms of size, what, where does his skill set match up, and who is he most like? Yeah, he, he is sort of um, – I think it is a little bit different skill set. And, um, you know, first of all, from a talent perspective, I don't, I don't know it's that – I don't think it's that crazy of a notion to think, um, you know, him challenging for the starting spot. Uh, you know, I think that, that that's a possibility from a, from a talent standpoint. Now, for all the reasons we just talked about, you know, Marshawn Lloyd's been here. He's gone through spring practice. He's gone through everything this summer. Has been very, very dedicated. Very, the other part of that, um, going off on a little side tangent, the, the other part of that is that Marshawn is just a very sharp kid, man. Super smart, picks things up quickly, um, dives into the playbook. All those reasons lead me to believe that it's going to be really difficult for anybody else to take that that first snap at, at running back. Um, now, from a skill set standpoint, White is, um, like you said, is a little bit bigger. Um, I think he he can run with some power. Like I said, he's. I would say Marshawn Lloyd is more. You know, like you said, Marshawn Lloyd is compact. He's got sort of a, a short area burst to him, a little bit lower to the ground, kind of. Uh, you know, and I think Marshawn Lloyd is going to be one of those guys who has deceptive power in that um, he, he's so, he has such a small, like lower center of gravity. And he is a super strong kid that um, 
it's hard for guys to square him up just watching, you know, watching him on a high school uh, film. Uh, Zaquandre is a little bit heavier. And I think he was listed like 6'2", 215 or so at JUCO. So he's heavier, but he's a little bit longer, a little bit rangier. Um, you know, I, I think it's a little bit of a long stride guy that if you get him out in the open field, um, has deceptive speed. Uh, once he get, you know, has top end speed, uh, I think. So, so yeah, I think there are some similar things about the guys, but they are built a little bit different. And, and I'm just curious to see, you know, what, what his skill set looks like at the SEC level. Because in high school, watching his film there, man, he, he was able to do pretty much whatever he wanted. He had, he had speed. He had power. Um, he was bigger and faster than most of the kids he was playing. So, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see sort of that transition. He has some toughness about him. I think that's an important skill set at, at running back. Played some linebacker at Florida State. Dude, mm-hmm. if you're playing FBS linebacker and, and actually got in the game, this isn't one of those things where, you know, they they put him at linebacker and then it just never worked out. They put him at linebacker and he collected some stats. He had some tackles. To me, that says something about your toughness, your athleticism, your size, strength, all that stuff. So I, I think they're, they're certainly – it's still a phrase I've noticed Chris uses all the time, but I don't think he realizes how um, how much he uses it. We'll uh, throw an homage to Chris here since he's not here. There's a lot to like about <laughs> yeah. Quandre White. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to see what he can do, man. I, I think if you look back, though, I mean, this was a bona fide, like, top 15 running back in the country. Mm. Huge target for Florida State when he signed with those guys and according to most services, is now the number one junior college transfer back in the country. So uh, I think if South Carolina fans are excited, which I think they are, it's uh, it's rightfully so because this um, this running back room just, just got a lot better, I think, as far as overall talent. And, dude, if you were to – most schools don't lose their top – you know, including A.J. Turner, lose your top four threats at running back or, or four of your main threats – you know, Kevin Harris, I guess, would have been in, in that conversation there as well. But four of your top guys at running back from a season ago and then be like, oh, man, you know, we're in pretty good shape. But uh, but for South Carolina, losing Tavian Feaster, losing Rico Daddle, Mon Denson, A.J. Turner, all those things considered, I think running back is like kind of maybe you would even say the least of the worries right now. I, I feel like that spot's in, in good shape for those kitchens. Yeah, I mean, considering what Mike Bobo wants to run, it's probably good for South Carolina that the two areas where you have the fewest question marks are at running back and honestly probably at offensive line. And we can talk a little bit more about the line as we get closer to the season and do some of our position group breakdowns. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're a Carolina fan, you were probably already excited about watching at least Marshawn Lloyd, but just the group of running backs to see what they can do, especially in this new system. And like you said, you add White in there, and it's never bad to have more talent, either to push the guys that are ahead of you or to actually you know, challenge for snaps. But I have a two-part follow-up question since you mentioned White in space being a little bit longer with some of that top-end speed. How much does he help South Carolina in the passing game, and which of the five guys that we've mentioned uh, so far, or which of the five running backs that are actually you know, in consideration for playing time this year uh, is going to help Carolina the most in the passing game this year? Yeah, that's, um, I, I would say, a, a little bit difficult to answer, but I, I also heard, I'll say one thing there that I have heard. I hear Marshawn Lloyd can definitely help in, in that area. That, uh, you know, ba- basically the only final question, and it's not even 
a question and that it's a negative. It's and just like it's literally a question. We'll sort of have to see how it plays out. The only like question with Marshawn Lloyd is going to be the pass pro stuff because that, that's something you know they've only had five practices, man. So um, can't how does he handle that that side of of being a running back? Everything else, you know, I was told literally he's a complete back. Um, he uh, he can run with you know quickness. He can run with power. He can make people miss, and he can help him in the pass game as well. So, um, you know, this is a kid that I, I think if you're South Carolina, knowing some of the potential areas of question at receiver, you're going to have to get your tight ends heavily involved in the passing game. You're going to have to get your running backs heavily involved in the passing game, uh, maybe even your, your fullback at times, which is something that's sort of uh, new again or, around here with, with Adam Prentice. So, um, you know, White, I would think – you know, I haven't seen enough of him to know sort of um, how naturally he catches the ball. That's something I always look at. Can a guy catch the ball with his hands instead of his body? And can he sort of catch the ball in stride where uh, there's no wasted motion? There's no sort of – in this league, you have to be able to continue moving forward because that split second can be the difference in a big gain and, and you know, no gain, basically. So th- that's something we'll still have to see. But – I. I'll say it like this. If White can catch the ball naturally, he he is a guy, once you get it in his hands, that I think can make something happen in space and um, could help you out in that area. Because as we know, man, this is an offense. I I would say one of the biggest question marks last year that sort of bared itself out as being a huge negative with this offense was a struggle to consistently get open and a struggle to consistently – uh, manufacture big plays on like shorter routes, you know, taking a small completion and turning it into a, a big play. A lot of that I'm talking about the receivers, of course, but if you can get that from your running backs and use them in a variety of ways, that can maybe take some pressure off of other aspects of your offense, take some pressure off of the receiving core, which I, uh, I'll tell you, man, I, I think we've probably talked about the receiving core more than any other position group on the mm-hmm. team this entire offseason and, and with good reason because it is a huge question mark but any anybody else that can maybe relieve some of that I would say very strong pressure that, that's going to be on that group uh, could be a big positive for South Carolina all right well if we don't do anything else well in this podcast what we do well for sure is digression so if you will allow me Uh, a little bit of a digression into just really speculative territory because, again, you're talking about the wide receivers, the uncertainties, and it seems like there's going to be a legitimate quarterback battle that ensues for the next six weeks, fingers crossed, you know, before the season actually starts. But what I wonder, obviously we know the South Carolina is going to be a run-first team. We're going to see more big packages. We're going to see more fullback. We're going to see more two tight end sets. Um, I guess if that's, you know, available for South Carolina as long as 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 some other uh, tight ends develop there behind uh, Nick Muse. But that's going to be Carolina's go to formation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's going to be it's going to be a lot of that. But so what I'm wondering, let's say that South Carolina's receivers and quarterback play remain kind of a question mark this year. You mentioned how important the tight ends are going to be in the passing game to just sort of have uh, essentially those safety nets, those safety blankets, you know, underneath passes and things like that. How big, I guess, given what you know about Mike Bobo's offense and what you know about these running backs, what you just told me. How big do you think the screen game will be for South Carolina? Because it feels like that's been chronically underutilized. Because I remember sitting here with you and Chris this time last year talking about how 
effective Tavian Feaster was going to be either in the short passing game with little swing routes or, you know, in just the out-and-out screen game. And I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but I don't know, Tavian Feaster maybe caught, what, two screen passes last year? I, I can't even remember. I'm just guessing. But it seems a really underutilized part of the offense the last couple of years. How much do you expect it to factor in this year? Yeah, I would think it's going to have to factor in. and I, You know, I, I would say – I would say the running back screen game has probably been underutilized. I think the wide receiver screen game um, maybe at times has been uh, even overutilized, you know, when, when you RPO so much. But, but yeah, I think getting the running backs involved in the screen game will, will be a big part of this. And, just, you know, even the more we talk about it, the, the fullback, I, I think being involved in the passing game, not necessarily in the screen game, but just I, I think – as much as this in some ways, in some formations, we're going to see some packages we're going to see from a personnel standpoint. In some ways, it is a little bit – it will look a little bit old school. Um, I think it's a modern approach to sort of uh, some old school packaging, so to speak. And uh, what I'm by that is if you, if you turn on the film from Colorado State last year, you're going to see some drives where they're legitimately old school Georgia football high formation, you know, two receivers, one tight end, a fullback, and a tailback. And then three plays later, they're in four wide, spread out, very multiple. But even when they're in some of these more sets, uh, you see them sort of take those and, and sort of run almost spread plays out of these old school formations where you're motioning guys out, you're using the receiver quick game on the outside. Um, you're moving your fullback around to more of an H-back role at times. You're even maybe motioning the fullback out and using him as a blocker on the edge for the receiver screen game. Um, you know, getting the ball to your running backs on the running back screen game, the will game with those guys, play action, will pass out of the backfield. Um, you know, I, I don't know if necessarily that's going to be all we see, but I, I think that should that that's almost going to have to be a bigger part of this offense because they're going to have to sort of do what they do well, you know that if that's that's sort of how they're going to have to call games. And you know, I think some of the issues South Carolina has had the last couple of years ha, has been about the fact that the defense has been put back on the field so much. And you know, I, I wonder if, if this isn't an if this offense can just find a way to stay on the field, possess the football. This offense may almost have to take an old-school approach and sort of zag when everybody else is zigging, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. and kind of play or kind of play that let's stay on the field, let's wear the opponent down, let's get these running backs the football, let's keep them fresh and keep our defense fresh and, and try and, you know, win some some 21-17 to 17 ball games and while everybody else is going spread and hurry up and putting their, you know, putting their defense right back on the field. So I think when you, when you have a question mark, which receiver is going to be a question mark until it's not, you're going to have to look at, at other ways to try and move the football. And if you have running backs that can catch it and can make people miss, then um, I would say, yeah, just from a, just logically, I, I would think that would have to be one of the answers the questions on on offense. I think you're exactly right. I, I don't know how many games Carolina will or can win in a 38 to 35 kind of fashion, but as good as the defense is, 
I think, expected to be. And again, we'll have a little bit more time to talk about the defense uh, in detail here in the coming weeks. But as good as the defense is going to be, it's I think the, the job for the offense is don't put the defense in a bad position and don't give the other team you know too many possessions, too many opportunities to score and put the defense behind the eight ball like the offense did so many times last year. Uh, but the other part, as we, I guess, talk about how, how big the screen game could be with these running backs is that you know last year, by and large, I think the offensive line blocked the run pretty well. There are a couple exceptions and the way that South Carolina's offense deteriorated at the end of the year, I think it's I think it's hard to place blame on any one group or any one person. It's just like the whole thing was an awful, just you know, morass of terribleness. But I think by and large, the, the group that South Carolina had last year was a pretty good run blocking group, but struggled at times in pass protection. So not only are you talking about an unproven wide receiver group and a quarterback battle that you know I think will. I think they have some good options. They don't. They don't have anybody that's going to be in the Davy O'Brien Award chase at the end of the year. I, I think it's fair to say. I don't think that. I don't think that should offend anybody listening to the podcast right now. But given that, and given again, I'm not saying that the offensive line is going to be bad in pass protection. But if they're better at run blocking, you want to get those guys out in space because Carolina. You know, right now there's still a couple question marks as to who's going to be starting. But you look at that group of the you know five to seven guys that are in the mix, and it's a lot of long, athletic guys. And we know Wolford likes those types of offensive linemen. But I think about you know when Oregon was not exactly revolutionizing offenses, but when they were when they were first really rising to power. You know, I feel like mid to late aughts and then the early 2010s it was a lot of you know undersized linemen that they were taking advantage of their athleticism putting them in space setting them up as lead blockers for you know wide receiver screens running back screens I feel like again we're talking about it fitting because of the quarterbacks and running backs and lack of proven wide receivers but I think that could be playing to the offensive line strength as well yeah and I think we we've seen um ever since Wolford took over that sort of shift I would say in recruiting approach from uh, and you know we've talked about this on the podcast probably a a pretty good bit I I think the shift has been from maybe sort of focusing on guys that are are further along maybe already a little more technically sound to guys that are, are basically more I would say maybe not as far along technically or from a development standpoint but just have elite level athleticism I think with that it can take a little bit of time it can take a couple of years for you to sort of develop those guys and for the cream to rise to the top and for the develop or for the depth to start to develop I should say but I think you're sort of getting to that point where those guys you recruited are you know they were freshmen and sophomores and now they're they're seniors and juniors and uh, you know you start to feel good you have a you have a leader in that group in Sedarius Hutcherson who is like, I would say, poster child for bringing in an athletic kid, putting some weight on him. He works hard, and he develops into potentially a future NFL guy. And uh, I actually give credit that, you know, he, he came in before uh, Wolford took over. But, you know, I, I think this line ha- has a chance to sort of be one that they can lean on and um, can, can maybe get some things going and, and hopefully can can refocus. Uh, I think that we really saw some positives in the running game towards the middle section, that, like that middle chunk of the year last year, where South Carolina was really running the football well. And then it was like it completely disappeared, and, and there were answers, and, and teams realized, okay, they're not going to be able to spread the football down the field. And uh, let's completely sell out against the run. So I, I think that's going to be the question for, for this line is can – 
can the passing game take a little bit of the pressure off of them so that they can get back to what I think they, they do well. And that's, that's uh, running the football. I think the, uh, uh, the pin and pull became like a, a common went from being a football term to a common term that was talked about for, for about a month. I mean, that, that was season. last year's RPO. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the pin and pull, that concept has been in football for, for God knows how long. I mean, that's not something new. That's not even a new play. I, I mean, you know, for South Carolina, go go back to, I don't know, the North Carol- the South Carolina, North Carolina game, Spurrier's, I guess, last year when Sean Carson went, uh, had that long run late in the game to put South Carolina on top. That was a pin and pull sweep. I mean, the pin and pull has, has been a huge part of football, but South Carolina sort of realized, oh, that's something – we do well, let's lean on it. And the reason they do that well is because uh, these big offensive linemen, these big guards and tackles have the mobility to get out on the edge and pull and, and make blocks in space. So you're sort of leaning into something that you do well. Now, once teams started being like, okay, if we take away this, they're struggling in other aspects of the game, and, and they're able to sort of focus on, on that. So I think they're going to have to find some balance. I think um, the quarterback battle we talked about, as I can completely go off the rails here, the quarterback battle, I think which whichever quarterback can not only learn the offense, uh, understand everything, lead the team, blah, 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 all the things we normally talk about, but who can show that they can complete some passes down the field? Who can show that they can spread the spread – the defense out just enough for this offense to then go back to the running game and, and sort of become the, a grinded out team, I think is maybe an underrated aspect of this quarterback battle because ultimately they're going to have to run the football. But in order to do that, in order for these positives to actually show up, they're going to have to keep teams from being able to completely focus on stopping the run as their only worry if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah no that's that's true but again it 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 doesn't have to be at the expense like you like it seemed at times for carolina last year where it's like all right you know we got to prove that we're going to throw the ball and then you you know you come out and you throw it every single every single play of that first awful drive against missouri and it's like well wait wait a second what are we doing here it's it's just about having balance and showing your willingness to take a shots and and really setting it up off a play action you know if you're going to be a run first team i don't care if you come out and run the ball three times on the first drive, as long as, you know, on the second drive, that first play, you, you play action, you take a shot down the field just to say, all right, defense, you know, you're going to key in on this. We're going to keep you honest. So I, I think that's where uh, Mike Bobo's experience is is going to be important because, you know, for, for South Carolina the last couple of years, you know, Brian McClendon did a lot of nice things, and I, I think that he will probably still end up being a successful offensive coordinator. But part of, I, I think, a, a very like underrated part of, doing that job especially in a high pressure situation where your fan base is like angry at everybody on the coaching staff and all the players and and pretty much everybody because things aren't going according to plan is it's it's really hard to to kind of stick by your guns and i think there is a uh i think there's probably a little bit of a desire to say okay you know, we, we got to fix this right away rather than what i imagine mike bobo's approach will be in, in similar kinds of situations like yep you know it's not going well right now but we're not going to get anywhere by doing something that we are not good at that we're not comfortable with or that we're not used to, you know, you have to, you have to live with the ebbs and flows of offense and sort of trust in the system that you have implemented. And I feel like South Carolina too often in the last couple of years has sort of gotten away with that. 
Um, but again, that's a this is like a this is a full digression, uh, as digressive as any that we have ever embarked on. Um, but we will have plenty more time to talk about the offense, the ins and outs, the different position groups. Like I said, as we get a little bit closer to the season, but all this stemming from the official approval and arrival. I guess not. He hasn't technically arrived, but he is officially a South Carolina football player now. Is four-star junior college running back Zaquandre White. Um, huge get for South Carolina for for a lot of reasons and. Um, yeah, so that's I was gonna say that's the skinny, but that's the uh, that was not the skinny. That was the fat. But that's uh, that's everything you could ever need to know about Zaquandre White until we get some more news once he actually gets uh, on campus, gets in pads, and, and starts uh, running around doing football things. Uh, one more quick recruiting thing, Wes, and then uh, a couple bigger picture issues to talk about with you. Uh, not a huge week for South Carolina in recruiting, and it seems like maybe the cycle is finally slowing down. Uh, not that they're you know, not working anymore, but they're really focusing on football. Like I said, the 20-hour weeks have uh, just started, and the coaches are all in meetings now and, and doing a little bit more to directly prepare for the season, which is right around the corner. So the only real piece of recruiting news, at least for the class of 2021, is South Carolina offering another offensive lineman. We weren't sure how many more South Carolina was going to offer uh, in this class, uh, but Cameron Scott, whom I think you got a chance to talk to either earlier this week or late last week, is uh, – Maybe the last offer of an offensive lineman for the class of 2021 for South Carolina? Yeah, he's, he's the most recent offer at that position. Um, you know, as we've talked about, it's a situation where, um, you know, they, they could stay at, at two guys or they could expand out and, and take three. And I think in this case, you're, you're always recruiting, man, and you're, you're never really going to, even if, even if they decide, oh, we're, we're going to stick with two you're never going to stop looking for, for options because you never know what can happen. You know, maybe maybe a couple of guys transfer and you say, man, we need to take it a guy or two. Uh, maybe a kid out of nowhere decommits. So you, you always keep recruiting. I think in the case of this guy, just watching the film, and, they, you know, this is a two-star kid that, that most people, I guess, weren't really familiar with yet. But now the offer list is starting to blow up. You know, Ole Miss has offered. FSU has gotten involved. Um, just another really big athletic kid. And you don't see South Carolina recruit the state of Texas very often. But uh, you look and you realize, oh, he's originally from Georgia, um, has been in Texas for four years, but is from Thomasville, Georgia, which is actually the home of Mike Bobo, South Carolina's offensive coordinator. So you have some ties there, some connections, and um, – yeah, so I think this is more about South Carolina finding a kid they really like. Um, you know, he told me since they've offered, which they offered, I, I guess, officially a couple of weeks ago now, that he's talked to Warford like every single day, which uh, which wow. means there there's some some real interest there. And um, I, I know, I mean, I know the fan base is probably tired of me and Chris talking about you know diamonds in the rough and this guy could blow, you know, this guy could see his recruitment take off, et cetera, et cetera, but. I mean, that, that's just where we are right now. And anytime, especially during – we don't have to rehash why recruiting is the way it is right now, certainly with, uh, you know, coaches not being able to go evaluate. But you're going to have guys come out of nowhere. And the kid has 19 offers now. Like I said, Florida State has been sniffing around. Um, it's really not that far-fetched that it can take a while for the, the big schools to find someone. But I think if you're South Carolina, you already have two committed – like we said, they're only taking two or three at, at offensive line. Here's the thing: you're there. There's no need to even have to offer the guy if you think he's some fallback project of an offensive lineman. You know, so mm-hmm. so obviously 
they don't see him as a project type prospect or a two star guy. Obviously, they saw him and were like, "Wow, this guy is talented." Just maybe hasn't gotten the exposure that he he's needed to yet. Although you're starting to see that that sort of change with him. So anytime if you already have a position sort of in, in good shape or filled, and you offer someone, it's um, it's clearly a guy that they like a lot. Well, and the other part of this, Wes, and maybe you'll disagree with me, but as unhappy as the fan base is with the coaching staff right now, if if there's nobody else that you trust, if you're someone that wants to see Will Muschamp on the way out. Uh, if you think that Mike Bobo is just a spy from the University of Georgia trying to disrupt South Carolina from the inside, I mean, is there anybody else on that staff that even the most skeptical fans should and probably do trust more than Eric Wolford as as a uh, evaluator of talent and as a developer? You know, I think that's a good point, man. I, I mean, the guy has, has proved that he, he knows what offensive linemen look like. He's proved that he can um, – he can go recruit them and that he can develop them. I mean, I go back to when he was at South Carolina before. He signed, I think it was a, a six-man O-line class. And if you sort of fast-forwarded forward, three or four years down the road, like five of the six were were starting at South Carolina. It was like four of them were starting on the O-line. And then Cody Gibson was, was that uh, – remember when Cody Gibson was like a extra O-line mm-hmm. tight end type role? And then, and one of them, one of the one of the six didn't pan out. So it was like five out of the six found a way to, to start and help the team. So uh, yeah, the, the track record is there, and we got to remember O line is very difficult to evaluate. Difficult, it is a developmental position, as we know. Football is a developmental game, as Will Muschamp reminds us all the time. But that is certainly a developmental spot. It does take mm-hmm. some time, and I know the fan base. You know, you know, it's funny. As we digress again, mm-hmm. if you look around, if you look around these these message boards um, after a game day. There's there are virtually no fan bases in the entire country, and I'll include Alabama, Clemson. It doesn't matter. No, nobody's happy with their offensive right. line, right? <laughs> yeah. Because it, the expectations for an offensive line are always too high. Like when people hear us say. Oh, this this offensive line is probably one of the strengths of the offense this year. They immediately start grumbling. I'm sure. Oh, we've heard that for five years. Mm-hmm. You know. But here's the thing: those dudes that you that the offensive line is across from are the most athletic guys on the field, like pound for pound. And mm-hmm. SEC defensive line, they're playing defensive line. And one thing we've heard Eric Wolford say is, "I want offensive linemen who are athletic enough to play defensive line." Because you're trying to block guys that are super athletic. So in this league, you're not going to just win every rep. It's just not going to happen. So there is going to be it is going to be a roller coaster at times. Sometimes you're going to have good days. Sometimes you're going to they're going to eat your lunch. But long term, I, I think considering comparing that position group just with the other position groups at South Carolina, even you you feel like Eric Wolford certainly has a track record, knows what he's doing. He um, Apparently he's had a hand in like 30-something dudes that, that have gone, gone on to play a snap in the NFL. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, man, it's, uh, it is funny, though. If you look on message boards after a game, very few times are people like, man, offensive line played great. It's like, well, they're not 
sometimes you're going to give up a sack and sometimes the other side, you know, it, a lot of times it's going to be like a 50 fit, like O-line wins a play, D-line wins a play, O-line wins a play, D-line wins a play. It's, it's going to go back and forth. And and part of it is too, you like, and I, and I admit freely, like most people, you know, when you, if you watch enough football, you can tell, and you know, even if you don't watch football, you can tell who's a good wide receiver, who's a good running back, who's a good, you know, defensive back, even if that takes a little bit more nuance. Same with quarterback, but you watch it and you pick some of these things up. But most people, and I include myself, especially when I'm watching the game the first time, I'm very, very rarely watching what the offensive line does. You know, I, I try to pick up what I can on, you know, sort of a second watch through. But I also just, like, I don't know enough about offensive line play, so I just I kind of trust the experts. And that's one of the reasons that I really enjoyed uh, doing the podcast with Will Helms that we would do on Monday and sort of break down the analytics of the game, you know, according to Pro Football Focus and some other relevant numbers, is there were times when South Carolina would, you know, have a tremendous day running the football. And it's like, yeah, you know, according to Pro Football Focus, people that actually do know what they're talking about and what they're looking at, it was, uh, you know, a pretty average day for the offensive line. And then also times when Carolina was, you know, absolute garbage running the football. And it's like, yeah, the offensive line actually blocked their best game of the season, but the running backs just couldn't hit the hole. So, I mean, it's, it's one of the beautiful things about football is it's just incredible symbiosis and sometimes it's frustrating because we don't know you know how to how to parse it how to make sense of you know one piece of it or the other because it's all so interconnected but uh, I guess I just say all that to say Wes you certainly know more about offensive line play than I do um, but I, I try to I try to save my strong opinions for other parts of the field that I can uh, assess a little bit more because it's just there's so much about offensive line play that just I think most casual fans don't really understand. Yeah, and I, I think that's why it's fun sometimes to something I I try to do and at least try probably need to do even more of. It's actually good and, and fun to sort of get the take of some of these former players if you're watching a game. And I think um, Pre, like Preston Thorne will tell you when when those guys are watching a game, you know, mo, mo, your average fan is a is a football watcher, like you're watching the football. Um, if Preston Thorne, former Gamecock defensive lineman, is watching the game, he's watching the D-line versus the O-line from a D-line perspective. And, um, you know, if he, Jeff Barnes, the, you know, the AD at Hammond, former offensive lineman, he's watching the game probably from, from an O-line standpoint, mm-hmm. an O-line versus D-line standpoint with a focus on the O-line. You know, so – and that's – I mean that that is one of the beautiful things about football is you have you have all this chaos, but you have you have this this huge battle up front between the O line and the D line that can disrupt any play at any time. Then you have this sort of chess match with the O C versus the D C of here's where I'm as an offense coordinator gonna send my guys versus where you as a defense coordinator are sending your guys to defend it. Then you have this more finesse battle on the outside where receivers are trying to get open on the DBs, either one-on-one or with help or in zone coverage. Then you have the quarterback having to try to make sense of all of it in real time in like three seconds. So you have all these different battles. It's actually, I would say it's almost impossible, even for a head football coach, it's almost impossible to watch all those battles in real time happen at once and know what's happening. So you almost need the benefit of either multiple people watching particular areas of the game, or you have to go back. You know, you can, you can watch a single play five times and 
five different things that happened within mm-hmm. the confines of those four seconds, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is what makes football pretty awesome is that, yes, it is this grown man's game that is about six foot five, 300 pound athletic freaks slamming into each other. But then it's also about the smarts of, of putting them in the right position and uh, the athleticism and speed of the guys on the outside. You have all these things going on mm. at, at once, and then you get to turn around and do it all again. <laughs> you know? So, uh, so yeah, but I, I think leaning on on guys who've played those positions is definitely key for an understanding of the game because they they have a feel for it that's even – even if, if you and I just sat here and watched the offensive line the entire game, we're – you know, yeah, we might be able to point out some things, but – it's not going to be close to what somebody who played the position, you know, if, if we sat there and watched it with Dylan Wanham and he told us what he was seeing, mm-hmm. it, it'd be completely different, you know? Right. Yeah, that's um, all a very good point. So all that to say, you know, maybe maybe uh, hold your opinions against nothing official. This is not a commit. This is just a, a quick recruiting notice. South Carolina has extended a scholarship offer to Cameron Scott uh, out of the state of Texas. So again, I'm I'm just gonna trust in Wolford and like this, like I said, this isn't a commit or anything. So uh, nothing to you know overly wring your hands about if you're someone that's inclined to do that. Just uh, really the only piece of recruiting news other than Zaquandre White officially being cleared to come play at South Carolina, uh, at least in the last week. Uh, Wes, I had a couple other things I wanted to touch on today, but we're going a little bit long here, and I think we'll have more information on some of these topics next week as the SEC athletic directors are expected to make a decision or an announcement about what the schedule makeup will be in the SEC. They said by the end of July, uh, the end of July is Friday. So whether that's actually the end of July, maybe early August, we'll have a clearer picture, and, and you and Chris and I will be able to discuss discuss it all together uh, when Chris is back and once they've actually made that decision. But I'm wondering if, and this is all I'll, I'll ask you about this today, the ACC was expected to make a decision today. We were recording this Wednesday morning, and late yesterday afternoon, Brett McMurphy reported that the ACC is actually expected to punt on that decision and maybe wait until after the August 4th meeting of the Board of Governors uh, to make a decision on that. So do you know if, I don't know if you've heard anything or if this is still just speculation at this point, but do you know if the SEC is still planning to make a decision here in the next couple of days or the next week, or are they, like the ACC, going to keep pushing this thing back? Yeah, it's interesting. We, You know, we've been hearing for a while that, um, you know, this is when they want to make a decision as late as possible at probably the end of this week. I haven't heard anything new on that, but it certainly – it certainly seems like with the ACC planning, maybe the SEC turns around and does the same thing. It seems like nobody nobody really wants to make a decision right now. And I get it because this it changes weekly. And I think also you have an aspect of we sort of, if you look back three months ago, the word was, hey, we, guys, we have time. We have time to see what's going to happen. And then – here we are three months later, and it's like, well, kind of are running out of time, huh? Like, there, there has to be a decision. I, I I wouldn't be surprised. This is completely speculation, which I hate to speculate, but uh, that's sort of what we're left with right now. I wouldn't be surprised if the SEC doesn't push it back as well. But I, I do think, you know, right now all indications are they're, they're planning to play in, in some way. What exactly that's going to look like from a scheduling standpoint, we shall see. But, um, you know, the SEC wants to play. They're planning to play. They're preparing to play. So uh, we'll just all have to wait and see for, for it to be made official. But 
I mean, just think about the ebbs and flows of this thing, man. From oh gosh, we're worried to yeah, it's looking good to to watch. Hey guys, watch how Major League Baseball handles things, and then Major Baseball has an outbreak within four days, you know, of starting, and everybody's like, "Oh crap! How's college football going to play if Major League Baseball can't play?" And then here's the thing: I was watching the Braves yesterday. I hopefully this is still the case, still up to date. Since the Marlins had all those guys test positive, there hasn't been a single positive case for any other Major League Baseball player mm-hmm. in the entire league other than Marlins player. So it was kept within the confines of that team, which I think is actually a positive sign. The, the other thing nobody's talking about is baseball has to play. They're playing like 60 games in like 65 days. They're playing every single day. They're traveling all over the country to play 60 games. And there's a lag in testing from you could test on Wednesday, have the results on Thursday, but you played Wednesday's game. You know, with football, basically you're talking about trying to find a way to get through 10 or 12 games safely, not get through 60 games in two months plus a 16-team playoff. So – Yes, football is a little bit different, obviously, from a social distancing standpoint. But, you know, it's worse in that case. But it's a little bit easier to manage, I think, from a game standpoint in trying to make sure that that you're good going into each game, I think. All I'm doing right now is crossing my fingers. I'm more optimistic now than I was a couple weeks ago, and I've always been kind of optimistic. But, uh, you know, what you mentioned with Major League Baseball, with the exception of the Marlins – practicing uh, just intentional gross negligence and really screwing themselves and a lot of Major League Baseball over. Everyone else has done what they needed to, and by and large, it's worked. And we've seen the NBA. Now their season doesn't start until tomorrow, but the last couple weeks with scrimmages going on and everybody down in the bubble, it's been perfect. The last I saw that, you know, they haven't had a positive COVID-19 test in about three weeks. Uh, Seems like the same thing with the NHL. Last week they tested, they administered over 2,500 tests to coaches, players, training staff, et cetera, and yielded exactly zero positive COVID-19 tests. And we're seeing more of those numbers across the country from universities that are reporting those numbers. You know, a couple weeks ago, Kentucky had zero, and Michigan State had zero. And uh, South Carolina hasn't reported this officially, but someone that I spoke to that uh, I generally trust uh, said that it's actually been about three weeks for South Carolina since they have had a positive test. So, again, I don't know if that's true. I'm not reporting that. That's just what I'm hearing and, and all that to say. It seems like the places that have these bubbles, it is it is working by and large, and I hope that gives athletic directors a, a little optimism and a little confidence to go ahead and move forward with this. But hopefully, like I said, by the next time you and I speak, West, well, not the next time, actually, because I think you're going to uh, come on the halftime show with uh, Jay and myself a little bit later to discuss more of this uh, Zaquandre White stuff. But uh, the next time you and Chris and I talk on this podcast, hopefully we will have a clearer picture of, uh, of what that might look like for the SEC and maybe even for the ACC. Before we get out of here today, Ton of stuff on GamecockCentral.com right now, as always. Again, incredibly busy all throughout quarantine, and now that things are picking back up, especially with football season right around the corner, 20-hour weeks have already started. Plenty of good stuff to read. Colin Taylor's writing the most important, and then going class by class, uh, a couple hours ago published the most important sophomores of 2020. Wes, you have the full story of Zaquandre White being cleared to enroll at South Carolina. And a couple days ago, you published uh, what I thought was a really good piece that everybody should go read about the wild cards and which Gamecocks could change the course of the season. Very compelling subject, very compelling title. I guess you probably write your own titles. But without spoiling the whole piece because people need to go read it. Oh, you didn't? 
No, I said I do. I do. Okay, all right, good. Yeah, good title, good subject matter. Um, if you want to see the full list, you'll have to go to GamecockCentral.com. But give me just one as a teaser, one wild card that could change the course of the 2020 season. Yeah, and the whole sort of sense of the wild cards was just when Chris and I would, would talk on these YouTube lives, I found myself using that word all the time. As in, like, this guy's a wild card. Who, if, you know, you're not counting on it, but if he sort of – if something happens where they get healthy or they, they live up to their potential in a lot of these cases – it can change the way we think about the team or specifically a position group. Uh, so, for example, one of the guys already gave away, one of them was the Quandre White. We talked for probably 25 minutes at the top of the show on why that is. But I would say Jalen Dickerson, safety, someone that from this moment this guy stepped on campus, South Carolina was very excited about what he could do and just has had big injury after big injury that has kept him from being able to live up to that potential. That's a position you look at the, the I mean, go all the way back to the loss of Hamza Nazaruddin from that recruiting class. And then the loss of Jalen Dickerson from a health standpoint, the safety position really has never completely recovered. I, I would say from that. So, but if he can step in, get healthy, live up to his initial potential, then I think that position is all of a sudden solidified. We've talked a ton. The big conversation all offseason, man, has been, does Izzy McQuamu play safety? Can Johnny Dixon or Cam Smith step up, lock down a corner spot to allow Izzy to play safety? That's obviously still a question. That's something to watch. But the other question, the one that hasn't been talked about enough, in my opinion, is Jalen Dickerson find his way onto the field and, and sort of finally be, be that uh, – proven not proven but really really talented good starter at safety and relieve the pressure on that other question and um so that that's sort of that was the thought process of the wild cards i'm that's it's not like i'm predicting that projecting it or anything it's more like hey here's some what ifs Mm -hmm. because we always the seasons never play out exactly the way we expect them to or think they will so here are like some what ifs that actually yeah hey if this happens then the Gamecocks are are feeling pretty good about things. I think that's a really good one. I'm fascinated by the secondary, and it's a group that I generally have confidence in, but the exact composition of the secondary is fascinating and I think has a really incredible upside for South Carolina because if one of these younger players is able to step up and man a corner spot, we know J.C. Horn's going to be a corner. It seems like South Carolina wants to keep Jamie Robinson at nickel. I wonder if they will experiment with him being one of the other corners and try to find somebody else to play the nickel, but Robinson just played it obviously so, so well um, to be listed as a SEC all-freshman defensive back last year that I imagine they might want to keep him there. But if they can have one guy step up at that corner position and then you have the flexibility to move Israel Mukwamu uh, back to one of the safety spots where he's already on a couple of preseason watch lists, so I guess national pundits are expecting that to happen. And then you have a couple of guys in R.J. Roderick and Jalen Dickerson that have at least been around the program for a while. Obviously, uh, R.J. Roderick's been able to play a little bit more. But you have some options there and even a little bit of depth, which has kind of been the key word the last couple of years of South Carolina has suffered a lot of injuries. So if Jalen Dickerson is able to emerge, if Israel Mukwamu is able to move back to safety, all of a sudden you're looking at a group that has incredible talent, uh, length, a good combination of youth and, and veteran guys. And I think I think that unit, we talked to, you know, about how good the running backs might be for South Carolina. If those, and again, I don't think those are huge 
I don't think those are huge obstacles for South Carolina because I think the expectation has always been that Jalen Dickerson was talented enough and good enough to be starting on a week-in, week-out basis in the SEC. It's just a matter of staying healthy. Um, so really the only question mark there is, you know, can one of those young corners emerge? And John Dixon was starting at corner in the North Carolina game last year. Obviously that didn't last, you know, too terribly long, but you give him, you know, a little more experience, another year under his belt. That's not necessarily a far cry, and he doesn't have to be J.C. Horn. Just don't be a sieve over there. But I think the ceiling for that group is basically the highest of any other group on the team. Yeah, and I think um, I'll go back. Chris and I were hearing when Jalen Dickerson arrived, this is all the way back, true freshman. He got on campus, and we were being told, watch out as this kid goes through camp. He could be an instant starter at safety. So so much like we saw J.C. Horn instantly start at nickel his freshman year, we saw Jamie Robinson instantly start at nickel his freshman year. For the safety spot, Jalen Dixon could have been one of these guys that instantly plays. And then mm-hmm. it was uh, the shoulder. Um, you know, he had another injury. I, I was looking back. I had forgotten. In between all that, he played in like 2018 – Finally, he had gotten back on the field, had gotten back healthy, and then he had a hamstring injury that slowed him for like three games in that season as well when he was finally starting to – that was when their safety spot was just completely decimated, um, if you remember. So, so yeah, if you go back, this is someone they've been high on for so long, and he's a great kid, hard worker. Uh, I mean, he gets it as far as football. It's just been one thing after another from a injury standpoint. So, yeah, and I, I think that sort of – it encapsulates what I was thinking of with the wild cards. Like these aren't things that are like far fetched to think they could happen. It's just something we we just don't know because um, you know I, I think um, for example Ortre Smith could easily be. I I sort of I did some stuff the receivers on there, but Ortre Smith could fit that same thing. This is a guy that caught thirty something balls as a true freshman. If you go back and look, not many guys catch that many passes in South Carolina history as a true freshman, but he did. And now he's sort of just a little bit of a forgotten guy because the the, the knee has, has held him back the last couple of years. Yeah, and even though he only missed the one year, I mean, it was effectively a two-year injury as he tried to recover from that and, you know, get more comfortable and get to the point where he can really trust his leg and, you know, all that. So it's uh, it's uh, a really interesting. There are a lot of there are a lot of what ifs. And again, that was sort of the like you said, the point of this piece, how you framed it. A lot of what ifs, and this season can go a lot of different ways for South Carolina. You can't expect all these all, all these I guess balls to bounce the right way, as it were. Um, but if Carolina can get a couple of them, especially in some of those key positions, if Ortrey can emerge, if Jalen Dickerson can stay healthy, you know, those are going to be the the really sort of uh, pivotal, quieter stories of the early part of the season. But go check out the rest of the piece, see which other wild cards Wes has identified that could change the course of the season for South Carolina and everything else that's up on GamecockCentral.com. Again, the most important juniors, the most important sophomores, most important seniors, all that that Colin Taylor is working on, and uh, any other recruiting news, Gamecock Central is the place to check all that out. Uh, Wes, great stuff as always. Uh, And like I said, I think I'm going to talk to you here in just a little bit. Uh, But for everybody else that just listens to the podcast, we will be back next week. Um, Once Chris is feeling refreshed and hopefully we will have a clearer picture of what the college football season will look like in 2020, at least for the SEC. So thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to this podcast, and we will talk to you next week.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.